Amen. Uh, thank you for that, for all of those songs. Uh, come, to, come thou fount, come thou king. I love the words of that. And I love the, the chorus that was sang, Oh, How He Loves You and Me, very powerfully done. And uh, that song there, that is now the first time I've heard that song. And um, as you're turning to Matthew 9 with me, Matthew chapter 9, uh, that's a very fitting song to tie into our text uh, this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and let that be the backdrop then. That song, that testimony, that attitude, uh, let that be the backdrop of what we're going to read and speak on this morning. Because I can tell you, at least four people coming out of our text today would live the rest of their days uh, with a knowledge that no one ever cared for them, like Jesus specifically. And uh, he probably was taken physically from them, I'm going to assume, uh, within a year of what we're about to read. And so they wouldn't be able to see him physically and continue to say thank you that way. But they would use what he did in their life as a testimony of what we just heard. No one ever cared for me. And is that, that needs to be our theme today. Is that our message? Is that how our life is projecting uh, to people uh, the message of Christ? So uh, Matthew chapter 9. Today we're going to try to look at nine verses. And... Uh, before I read them, uh, we're going to try, I think, to put in some notes. I know a lot of you, uh, we make the handouts available and you have blanks to fill in, and we will try to have those available. But if that gets to acting up in one way or another, uh, two options. Uh, you can really listen well and try to fit the right words into the blanks as they happen. Uh, maybe that will work. But if it doesn't, you find that frustrating, just set it aside and we'll send out a completed version of the notes later, okay? So if they don't work, maybe they will, maybe they won't, will not, uh, but the Lord still wants to speak to us out of today's text. Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 18, if you would. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, so remember the scene, Jesus has called Matthew a tax collector to be one of his twelve. Matthew invites other tax collectors and well-known sinners to a feast to expose them to Jesus. It's an evangelistic moment for Christ. But the Pharisees are questioning him, why in the world are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? They ask his disciples. Not long after that, some disciples of John the Baptist, maybe a little less critically, but still critically, ask Jesus himself why his disciples don't fast when they fast all the time. They, we fast regularly, even the Pharisees fast regularly. How come your disciples don't fast at all? And Jesus likens it to it would be improper to fast while the bridegroom is there. It would not be right for the wedding guest to mourn and fast while the bridegroom is with them. So verse 18 again. While he was saying these things to them, literally, one of the things I notice in today's passage is just how busy. I mean, Jesus is doing one thing and something already is forming over here. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler... A ruler came in and knelt before him. Some have translated that like worship, but it's literally the idea of falling, like on the move, falling at his feet. There's a lot of urgency here. Saying, the idea is imploring. Here's what he says. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. My daughter's died but if you'll come, lay your hand on her, 
she will live. And Jesus rose, that tells us he was apparently seated. He rose and followed him with his disciples. I'll go ahead and tell you, his disciples, that however many of them there are at that point, they are moving, they're on the move to this ruler's house. Not all of them are going to make it to the house. You're not going to see this in the text because after this next episode, verse 20 and 21, Jesus is only really going to allow Peter, James, and John to continue with him and this ruler. And so the five of them will actually make it to the ruler's house. But here goes the whole crowd, verse 20. And behold, a woman, unnamed, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Let that sink in. Uh, That goes back to 2008 for us. What have you been doing the last 12 years? That goes back to the last year of George W. Bush's presidency and in all of the, the eight Obama years and the three Trump years. So what have you been doing? What was your life like back in 2008? So verse 20 again. Behold a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. For 12 years she's been losing blood, bleeding. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So Jews, Jewish males would wear a fringe, a border, a specific tassel at the four corners of their robe. And this was a reminder that they were the special people of God and that they were to obey God. Uh, Jesus is going to rebuke the Pharisees because they don't just have tassels. They make theirs really big and, and really prominent so that it looks like they're especially spiritual. Jesus, in obedience to the Old Testament, has these tassels. And so verse 20 again, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, the tassel. Why would she do that? For she said to herself, here's her inner thought, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So she does that. And we're not told what happens. Mark and Luke tell us exactly. She's healed. And the order here seems a little strange. But verse 22, Jesus, again, she was healed. She touched. Jesus stops, and the verse says, he turned, and seeing her, he said... So again, we're missing some pieces. Matthew is super condensed compared to Mark and Luke because there were some other things that happened there. It wasn't instantaneous that he looked at her, but again, Matthew's condensed version. She says to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Notice, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. That instantly made well means from that very moment, from that hour, at that, that time, we know from the other Gospels it was when she touched the hem of his garment or the tassel or the fringe. Now verse 29. So that incident happens. The other Gospels tell us it's only Peter, James, and John and this ruler. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, what's it like? He saw, he came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players. What's that all about? Well, this seems like it should be a somber occasion. Not time for a symphony. Well, there's a reason. Their culture had it. He saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. There's lots of weeping and wailing, loud weeping. and It's getting worked up, literally working up, the weeping and the wailing. Jesus comes to that situation, verse 24. He said, go away. Who's that to? Those that are weeping and wailing and those that are playing the flutes, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. 
Oh, so does this mean the girl wasn't actually dead? She was literally only maybe a deep sleep or a coma, and they'd been mistaken. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's telling what already, he's prophesying what he's going to do. He's saying she's going to wake up. What he means is, yes, she's dead, but she's not going to be dead for much longer because verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, I'm sorry, I skipped part of verse 24, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. Other gospels said they mocked. <laughs> Did you just say? She's, they mock. They laugh. They're getting a kick out of Jesus. I thought you guys were mourning a moment ago. Apparently they weren't too deeply mourning because now they're laughing at Jesus. But when the crowd had been put outside, verse 25, quick note. Laugh at Christ. You know what happens to you? You get put outside. Verse 25. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her, little girl, by the hand, and the girl arose. Very condensed version from Matthew. And the girl arose, and he finishes this episode by just writing, and the report of this went through all that district. You get out. He goes into the house, takes the girl by the hand. She rises up. He tells him, get her something to eat. And the report of this goes throughout the district. I want to notice four things this morning. Uh, couldn't condense down to three. Kind of felt like we needed to. And the first two are really kind of just retelling the story and reacclimating and getting a little more understanding of some of the background of the situation as we mainly will be heading to the third and the fourth point being the main points this morning. Number one, would you notice with me this morning, a father's desperate request. We notice a father's desperate request in verse number 18 and 19. Uh, But I need to begin here. Don't do it right now, but if you want to get a fuller understanding of what happened in this passage, you really need to to go over and read Mark and Luke's version. It's Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8, I believe it is. And in those accounts, I'm telling you, Matthew is so condensed, he's like half the size of each of those other two. And so each one of them give a unique perspective. I keep saying this because I introduce each chapter this week, each week, By saying how the Gospels are unique in their perspective, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each are writing about the very same life, but they're each giving a unique view of that life. And you have to put it all together for it to complement and give a fuller picture. Uh, Normally on a normal Sunday, we would be here together. And I'm thinking some of you sit way over to my far left in this section. Others of you sit to my immediate left right here. Others of you sit to my immediate right, and some sit to my far right. Some of you sit near, and some of you sit further back. I'm telling you, it, where if you were to move around among those, you would have a little different feel, a different perspective of our service. It'd be like, wow, I felt like I was almost like in a different service, but it would be the same one. That's the way the Gospels are. Now, here's why I'm elongating this point this morning. If you were to read Matthew's version and then go read Mark and Luke, I'm going to tell you straight up, there looks like there's a major contradiction. Matthew opens up by saying that there's this ruler who came in and knelt before Christ and says to him, my daughter has just died. But Mark and Luke, I think Luke says that the man comes and asks Christ, he's presenting to Christ because his daughter is dying. And Mark actually says, that he brings it and says his daughter is at the point of death. So she's dying in Luke at the point of death in Mark. And here in Matthew, this man's tone is, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. 
So I guess Matthew is contradicting or they are contradicting him. Let me offer a possible solution, a way that we can reconcile this text. And I think it's one of your notes. I'm going to propose to you that when the man had left his house, when this ruler had left his house, that the daughter had not actually died yet when he leaves the house. But, now watch this, I'm putting it all together, it seems that he, he fully anticipates she will have died before they get back to the house. She hasn't died when he left, he assumes she will. That tells me this is not a condition and it's finally culminated Maybe that's the case. It seems to me that perhaps something has happened, an event. It is so bad that they know the girl is dying. And then I read between the lines a little further, and I'm thinking, this man who is in his heart thinks his daughter is going to be dead before he gets back home spends the last few moments of her life not at her bedside, but gone to get Jesus. That's how he's going to spend the last moments of her life. Well, when we look at the other Gospels, what do we find? Sure enough, while Jesus, this man approaches him, again, apparently, my daughter is dying, they head that way, there's this interruption with this woman who has the discharge of blood for 12 years, and at the end of that, then the messengers come, and they present to Jesus that the girl has died, your daughter has now officially died, and they even say, don't even bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus overhears while talking to the, to the lady, they overhear, he overhears the messengers, and he tells the man, don't fear. Hey, 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 don't fear. Only believe. Only believe. And it appears that in that setting, the man still believes, you still come to my house because if you will, if you'll put your hand on my daughter, she will live. And so we see a rounded out version. It's as though his attitude is, You can come and heal my dying daughter or you can come and raise my dead daughter. But it's all the same. Whether she lives or whether she dies, this man still has full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He fully believes. And sure enough, the daughter dies while he's with Christ. A few other things. Again, I don't have time. We will, in a few moments, we're going to read a section out of Luke. But I can't exhaust the other two. They each give unique pieces of information. Let me fill in a few blanks that we do know, okay? We know that this man has a name and we know what it was. His name is Jairus. We know that the daughter, what do we mean by saying this daughter? We know that it is his only daughter and we know that the daughter is 12 years old. So I want you to picture in your mind a 12-year-old girl. She's the only daughter and I'm assuming the only child of a husband and a wife. And the wife, the mother of the girl is mentioned, not by name, but she's mentioned in the other passages. So here's this only daughter, 12 years old, and here's this man named Jairus. He's called a ruler. Quick piece of information that's important. He's not a Roman ruler. He's actually a Jewish ruler. We're told he's a ruler at the synagogue. He's a ruler of the synagogue. So what does that mean? So the Jewish synagogue there in Capernaum, this man is one of or the ruler of that. That doesn't mean he does all of the teaching. That means that he is the overseer of the building. He's the overseer of the program. He's going to determine, it's going to be as the Lord leads him, what will be the Old Testament law passage that will be read and studied this week. What will be the part that comes out of the prophets and what will be the part that comes out of the writings, the three sections of the Hebrew Bible. He, He will pick that. He will assign who will teach on each part. No doubt he teaches himself, but he has other people that are also teaching. Here's why I think that's important. 
I'm going to read between the lines a little. By this point in Jesus' ministry, now remember this, the official stance of Jewish religious leaders is opposition. It's already happening. They are opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's the case, and this is a typical synagogue, and here Jesus is operating out of this synagogue, and all of a sudden, already, people are questioning Jesus' words. He's saying strange things. He's doing strange things. Why are you eating with tax collectors? Why are you eating with sinners? Maybe this man would have been there questioning that himself had his daughter not been dying at home. By the time he makes it there, in the middle of all these questioning, his daughter, again, something has happened. He's in a desperate situation. What I propose to you, I can't guarantee you, but as the ruler and one of the teachers at the synagogue, this man has probably spoken against Jesus multiple times. It is probably a regular thing. Jesus is the hot item in that area. They're starting to view him as a false teacher. But all along, and so this man has no doubt spoken against Christ. But all along, he is haunted by something that he can't get away from because it keeps happening right there in his town. It is undeniable Jesus is a miracle worker. Some of you will remember in John chapter 3, verse number 2, where there's this man, he's called a ruler of the Pharisees, higher ranking than Jairus. This man's down in Jerusalem. He's one of the Sanhedrin, one of the top 71 people in all the land of Israel, and he's a well-known, high-ranking Pharisee. His name's Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says, We, Pharisees, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God is with him. So putting these together, I think Jairus is much like Nicodemus. They're confused by Christ, by his words and his actions, and frankly, his utter willingness to just go against the grain of the religious elite. It blows their minds. They're confused by that. But they cannot deny the power that he has. So I look at this man up in Galilee, not down in Judea where Jerusalem is. I believe this man suppresses. It's in there. He's publicly speaking against Christ, but inwardly he is actually suppressing great faith in Jesus' power, his miracle-working ability. And that is not surfaced until there is a desperate situation with his daughter. And so sure enough, the daughter is at the point of death. He's expecting her to die. Off he goes and he implores Christ. But think about what he's doing. For him to do this, imagine the wife, honey, where are you going? I'm going to find Jesus. Why? I'm going to get him here. Why? He can handle this. He can help. But honey, think. But what about all that you've ever said against him? Forget what I've said. I need him now. What about all your friends and the peer pressure? I don't care about those guys. This is my daughter. Do you understand? His urgency and his love for his daughter far outweighs his pride and having to eat his own words and peer pressure that was put upon him and being disapproved of by others. Notice number two. We notice not only a father's desperate request, but a woman's desperate action. We notice a woman's desperate action. We can't do this all the way through, but I am going to ask you to turn over, if you would, Luke chapter 8. So you have your Bibles there at home, I'm assuming. Luke chapter 8. Go to Luke 8, and we'll find. We're not going to read the whole account. We're just going to read part of what Luke writes about this lady because he sheds a little more light, and Mark does also. Luke chapter 8, look at verse number 43. Okay, verse 43. And there was a woman, so here's his version. We're going to fill in some gaps. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, 
Mark says, spend all her money. Though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. I mean, she's just pumping the money to the doctors trying to get this issue fixed. But because she couldn't, verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And watch what the, notice the order here. It's a little unique compared to Matthew. She touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Mark says she literally felt it happen inside. And in verse 45, Jesus said, he stops. Who, who was it touched me? Who was it that touched me? He knows something's happened. When all denied it, oh, excuse me, pardon, I, I didn't mean I might have accident. No, I'm not talking to you. I, I'm sorry. No, not, not you guys. No. Who, who just touched me? Who, who, just, who just touched me? And in verse 45, again, in the middle, when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Everybody's touching you is what he means. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. So as the crowd is making a way, this woman is coming forward. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. If you're taking notes at home, maybe you want to write the following. This woman's 12 years, I'm going to offer you this idea of her unique kind. Because it's her unique kind of physical suffering, the bleeding that she is doing, that means that the Old Testament would call her condition that of an unclean. She lived perpetually, not a few days each month, but perpetually for 12 years in a state of uncleanness. And that's why I make the following statement. For 12 years, her unique suffering only, was only compounded by her being excluded from all religious activity and, we could say, excluded from all meaningful relationships. Why? This is due to her ceremonial defilement that could actually contaminate other people. So here she is bleeding, internal bleeding. It's not just bleeding that is in the cavity that no one knows about. We're not sure why this person is so weak. This is a bleeding of such a type that the Old Testament specifically spells out that a woman is considered unclean. And she is, again, every day. And she's put this money into it. And, the, and it's not getting any better. It is actually getting worse, according to Mark. Notice, Verse, as we go back to Matthew, look at verse number 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered. Matthew 9, verse 20. Behold, a woman who had suffered. I'm going to propose to you that one word described the last 12 years of this woman's life. It was the word suffering. She has been suffering physically. She's been suffering spiritually. She's been There's some of you right now saying, Jeff, I just can't wait. I mean, I, I, just, I just need to get back to the Lord's house. I just want to be singing and just work. I want to be there live. I'm tired of watching the screen. I, I feel like I'm just suffering spiritually. This woman has been cut off from the synagogue. She's not allowed to go into the synagogue. She's cut off from religious activity. Suffering spiritually. Suffering physically. Suffering financially. Her money is gone. Suffering relationally. People can't be. Why? If you sit in a chair or on a bed where this woman has sat, you are now defiled. If she touches you, you are now defiled. She can have no meaningful relationships unless it's with someone who was willing to live in perpetual defilement themselves. She's been suffering 
psychologically, emotionally, every way. And now she's exhausted all of her money, and it's futile. It's meaningless. Again, it hasn't even slowed down at all. It has actually gotten worse the more she's gone to the doctors, and she's totally desperate. But then she gets a break, and I'm going to offer to, I think it was Luke, says that she hears a report of Jesus. I'm going to take that as a clue that she is not from Capernaum because Jesus is operating out of Capernaum. And she's not homebound, so she's got to know that this is happening all the time. And so she's getting a report from a distance that, that this man, Jesus, is actually a healer. And so I'm assuming she puts two and two together. He appears to operate out of, out of Capernaum. He shows up there quite a bit. I'm going to head down that way, and the next time he's in town, I'm going to do this. And she has a plan. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch the fringe. And so she does exactly that. She hears this report. It's her big breakthrough. She hears this person is not a doctor. He's a healer. He doesn't charge any money. So far, everything he's ever done is for free. And oh, by the way, his success rate, from what I'm hearing, 100%. And so she makes her way to Capernaum, and she encounters a crowd. But the good thing about this lady is a crowd is not going to catch this. A crowd is not going to deter her. A crowd is actually going to be in her favor. And so she puts herself among the crowd. Perfect timing. Jesus is headed to this man's house to heal his daughter. And in that crowd, her plan is to reach out and touch the garment of Christ. And here, one thing I notice, she doesn't need a word. She's not there to have a face-to-face. -face. Her plan is to come from behind the Lord. That tells me that this lady is not wanting to be noticed. She's not wanting a, a, a fancy, look-at-me Facebook post. She doesn't care if she gets interviewed for the local paper. She's not going to be on the news, on television. That, none of that matters. All this woman wants after 12 years, I just want some results. I don't care who knows it. And if I could just touch the hem of his garment, then I will be healed. And she has this great faith. And listen, everything works perfectly just like she planned, other than Christ stopping and turning. And you can tell something in his tone. He is not going to take silence as an answer. Who touched me? I know I've been, Lord, everybody, no, someone touched me. Power has gone out from me in the last month. Someone touched me and they are now healed. Who is it? And finally, this woman comes forth and confesses. Now, before we look at the third thing this morning, I want to do something, and guys, if you notice this, I say, if you, if you think, I think Jeff's had this note before. I'll probably put it in there every year I'm here, right? Some bird, we can go in lots of places in the Scripture. This was one of the things that stood out to me, and I know it sounds like I'm going to chase a little rabbit trail, but I think it's worth it because as I looked at this woman's life, I was a little bit rebuked. And maybe we all need to evaluate our lives. Would you write this down? This lady exhibits an order of priorities. I think she exhibits to us an order of priorities. And I want to offer that order of priority again. Some of you are thinking, okay, I already know where he's headed. That's fine. Let's taste it again. You have two bullet points. Here's the first one, all right? This woman's life and what she's done is giving us a truth that if we'll pay attention, we need to learn something. There's some of you, you may not get much out of the rest of the message. This may be the very reason the Lord has us tuned in this morning. Here's the first thing that we realize by watching this woman's life. Physical outranks financial. Physical outranks financial. You say, Jeff, I don't see that anywhere in the text. Mark and Luke both tell us 
that this woman has spent all of her money on doctors and physicians in hopes of getting a cure. Now pay attention, watch right here. Here's her money. I don't know if she has a stream of income or if she has an amount of money. It appears to be an amount of money that she had to live on. And over here we could call health, but her health has been taken from her. So she has money, but she doesn't have health. Watch what she does. This is a lesson to us. She's willing to trade off the money to get health. Why is that important? Here's what I find. Not, I'm not accusing all of you. I'm saying a lot of us here in America are like what I'm about to describe. When life is good. You say, Jeff, what do you mean by life is good? We need to define life as good. For my purposes, can I define life as good as this way? Life is good when you have enough food and you have enough clothes and you have shelter and you're healthy and those around you are healthy. Now, listen, I'm not talking about you don't have a nagging thing here or there, and there was that event that happened. I'm not, I'm not talking about those. Things happen. Suffering goes with life. But on the whole, we're healthy, plenty to eat, and there's harmony. Can I add that? I'm not talking about there's not the occasional disagreement and argument and all of that, but I mean, on the whole, people in your sphere, and you're in it, there's harmony, there's health, and there's enough food and there's shelter. I'm going to call when life is good, do you know what we get guilty of? We start fixating. Life's good, but we start fixating on how life could be great. You know how life could be great? It would be great. Now, this is good. It would be great if we just had more money. Man, if I had more money. And our minds, life's good, but our minds start running to, if I had more money, had more money. And like we'll fixate on that, but life's good. Why is that important? Because you give it a few years, and there's some that are going to watch this and say, that is absolutely the truth. We get a little older and old age starts coming in. And the nagging thing becomes the dominant thing. Or a disease strikes. Or death strikes. A, a disease strikes us. A disease strikes someone very close to us. Death strikes very close to us. And now where there was this wholeness and harmony, all of a sudden there's an empty seat. There's an empty place or two. Do you know what we do? Here's, guys, here's what we do. I'm telling you. All of a sudden, now we have these severe aches and severe pains, and there's hardly no, none of those good. Now we fixate on how good it was, and now we think, how man, I just wish I could go back to the good old days. But while we were in the good old days, we didn't see them as the good old days. We didn't enjoy them because here's our habit. We're constantly looking ahead if we had more, greater, better money, and then when we finally see the value of that, we want to look back to the good old days, back when we had it, and wish I could just, I wish I could go back and be like that again. Oh, how we're prone to discontent. This woman's been battling a severe issue for 12 years. I've not had that. Guys, can I tell you something? It's a Friday. Friday is supposed to be my day off, and sometimes it, Often it'll happen like that, part of it anyway. And so after I did have to run up here to the church for just a few minutes, about middle of the day, we threw our bikes in the back of the truck and we drove off up, Deanna and I. Erica had something she needed to do and Jonathan was doing something. And so Deanna and I threw the bikes in the back of the truck and we headed up to, to um, where we go, Pickens. And they have this little riding trail, right? It goes from Pickens over to Easley. We went down there and back. We're just taking our time, about a 15-little-mile ride. Go back, finish at Coyote Coffee, share a couple of sandwiches, get some frozen coffees, and we head back down. Guys, listen. 
the day's going to come where I'm not going to be able to throw the bike in the back of the truck and take a 15-mile little bike ride. I need to appreciate today. And so the Lord said, hey, you need to be thankful for Friday. Where are you at? Take the second bullet point quickly. Write this down. Not only does physical outrank financial, but spiritual outranks the physical. No doubt about it. Spiritual outranks physical. Jeff, where do you see that in the text, and what is your point? Guys, all I'm going to say on this is I promise you that any person, every person who's in hell right now, do you understand there's a literal hell, and there are literal people in hell. Every one of them would do anything. They would do anything to get out of there, to come back to earth, listen to me, and have the hardest most painful, most sorrowful life on earth. They would gladly come back. Whoever it is on earth that has the most painful, most sorrowful life, they would come back and say, I will gladly take that. Why? I'm going to give you two reasons. Number one, that is a thousand times better than hell. And the second reason is if they could have that painful, sorrowful life, isolated, lonely, whatever it is, how, whatever the, the worst life that is on earth today, they would take that life because they know that would give them one more day, one more opportunity to get things right with God and to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and escape eternal hell. Spiritual outranks financial. Financial out, uh, I'm sorry, physical outranks financial, but spiritual outranks physical and financial. Notice if you would, this note, I want us to write this thought. We are prone I'm prone to it, and most of us as well in America. We are so prone to envy what we do not have. I just want what I don't have. But what about what you do have? I want what I don't have. And we're prone to just take for granted the things that we do have until they're removed. So can I encourage you? If your life is good and your life is not being described like this lady here with the 12 years of the issue and the discharge of blood, then we need to be much more thankful if you have your Bibles, look over at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, maybe they'll be on your screen. I'm not sure how the notes are working this morning, but 1 Timothy chapter 6. Right before I read verse 6, I need to catch the last part of verse 5 because it's not on your screen. The Bible is talking about false teachers. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, Paul is telling Timothy, and then he describes them. Now, the end of verse 5 says, these false teachers are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Follow me. Godliness is a means of gain. So one way I could look at that is saying that some have this attitude that religion and things about God is a useful thing to gain wealth. And all you have to do is watch the television. Not all of them, but some on television use that platform as a way. You send your money to me and they live a really wealthy life. And that's their message all the time. That's how they think. Godliness is a means to gain wealth. But also, you could think of it another way. Some people have this mentality. So again, the end of verse 5, if you have your Bible open, you'll see it. The last phrase, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I may also look at it this way. Some people have this, this thought that if I live a godly life, then God will notice it and he will automatically give me blessings, material blessings. I will abound. I'll have more possessions. because God's, And here's what happens. That, that becomes the motivation. I'm going to do these things, and I'm not going to do these things. I'm going to abstain from that. Oh, I really want to, but I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I want blessings from God, material gain. And I'm going to do these things, and that becomes the motivation. 
But watch verse number 6. Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Watch it. Godliness is not a means to get great gain. Godliness with contentment. Just being content with what you have and being godly. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why would we say that? For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. With these we will be content. And so I think the lesson that Paul would have for us is godliness is properly viewed and sought after as its own end, as its own goal, as its own reward to the glory of God. Not as, Lord, look how I live, now you owe me. That is a wrong mentality as we go back to Matthew chapter 9. Would you notice with me this morning, third thought, not just a desperate request and a desperate action by this lady, but number three, the varied display, the varied power of Jesus on display. Notice with me the varied power of Jesus. So you have a woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years, and you have a daughter that was dying and is now dead. The varied power of Jesus on display. Not all the way in Matthew, but in Mark and Luke, here's one thing we learn, and let's note this. As Jesus is going through life, he is God, but he sets aside the independent use of some of his attributes, and yet he is still so perceptive that he knows that power has gone out of his body. And what I'm going to have you write next, you say, Jeff, this is such a simple note, it's the point of the passage, we don't even need to write it down. I'm afraid we will miss the point of this simple statement. I need you to, I need you to even write it, I need you to think about it, don't miss this. Write this down. Not only is he so perceptive, but Christ is so powerful. I know this is simple and it's in the text, but we need to actually say it. Christ is so powerful that faith to just touch his garment healed a 12-year infirmity that no doctor could cure. He is, you understand he is emanating power. He is so powerful that while he's on his way to disperse his power, he's emanating power to such a degree that a woman who just has faith that if she touches his garment, notice it's not touching his garment that healed this woman. He's so powerful that just believing touching his garment heals her of a 12-year infirmity. No doctor could cure. And it worked. He literally just faith in his power. But then he's really on his way to display his power. Notice with me, if you would, look down at verse 23. I will not obviously have time to go into all that verse 23 and 24. But the Bible says, Matthew writes, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd make a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So what's this about? Very quickly, let me just say when death occurred at that time and in that culture, in the Jewish culture, when death struck someone's house, there was an expectation. It didn't matter if you were poor. Even poor families were expected when death strikes to hire two, at least two flute players. And they were expected to hire at least one wailing woman. He said, what are these flute players? Their job is to stir up emotion. Loud kind of music. This is a very different setting like we do here in the Western world where we visit the family and there's a casket and a long line and there's lots of whispering 
and, and some sniffling, and we, we hug and embrace, and we move on. And again, it's very, their whole thing, because they're going to bury their dead within 24 hours typically. This, you say, what's this wailing woman? Again, Jairus is not a poor person, so he's going to have, while he's gone, the family would have already ordered multiple flute players and multiple wailing women. It, they're professionals. They literally are professionals. They come in and sing in such a way as to stir up emotion and grief. The goal is that you have to set a proper tone, a proper atmosphere of grieving. And if you don't, something's seriously wrong. And these wailing women, they're professional. And in a town like this, they know all the funerals that they've been to. And so they would start playing on all the loved ones of all the other people that so that everyone is getting worked up and emotional. And that would be looked at as the proper thing to do. Well, here's the thing. Christ comes into that. <laughs> you know what he does. Hey, 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 hey. Zip it. <laughs> That's my translation. Okay. Where he says go away is zip it. Knock it off. Hey, oh, but and I, in my mind, I'm picturing them looking at Mrs. Jarris. And Mrs. Jarris looking at Mr. Jarris. Like, what's, and they want to know, do we have to do it? And then Jarris says, to, do what the man says. Hey, like, ladies, pipe down. Just be quiet. Just, just stop it. Get out of here. You're ruining it. Because they're all worked up. And then he says, she's just sleeping. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Well, they know that she's dead, and she is dead. And Luke makes it very clear that the girl was dead. And they laugh. Why would anybody laugh at that statement? They laugh because they didn't understand Jesus' intention, and they mainly laugh because they did not understand his power. I think D.A. Carson helps us here. He writes the following. I'm going to read the whole quote, so listen quickly. Carson writes the following. They thought this great healer had arrived too late. Now he was going too far. Carried away by his own success, he would try his skill on a corpse and make a fool of himself. I think that's what they're thinking. <laughs> Listen, man, we've heard about you. Had you been here a couple hours ago? Maybe. You're too late. What does he think he's going to do? Does he think he's going to go in there and do something, say something, touch a corpse, and like that's going to work? Dude, you're getting ready to be made a fool out of yourself. You're going to have a rude awakening. No, I'll tell you who had the rude awakening. It was all those people when the girl comes walking out of the house because Christ is displaying his varied power. He heals a woman of a 12-year issue of blood and then he raises a girl to life. Would you look at verse 25? But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Do, y'all, do, you, hear, do you guys see that? Do you see that? When the crowd had been put outside, here's what Matthew writes. He went in, took her by the hand, <coughs> excuse me, and the girl arose. I'm thinking, okay, and the Holy Spirit told Matthew what to write, but a part of me is like, Matt, listen, man, isn't that a little subdued? Isn't that a little casual? I mean, you're just kind of writing that almost. Okay, you do put in verse 26, and the report of this went throughout all the district, okay? At least... Mark and Luke talk about how everyone was astonished. But you just kind of, real matter of fact, Jesus went in, touched her, she got up. Why so subdued? This deserves more. Excuse me just for a moment. I look at that and I think, Matthew, why are you treating this in the same tone and with the same emphasis as other miracles of Christ? Can I offer the following? Could it be that the reason he treats this this way is because, now pay attention, the difference 
in the amount of power that it takes to resurrect this girl to life, though more than the amount of power it would take to do the other miracles, perhaps with the exception of the calming of the storm, I would definitely put that right there. I mean, even the winds and the waves obey this man, and now he raises a dead girl back to life. I mean, her soul and spirit had left her body, and Luke says that when Jesus spoke to her and touched her, her spirit came back in. You say, where was her soul and spirit? I'm assuming it was with Abraham in paradise. But Jesus speaks, her soul and spirit comes back into her body. Matthew, why are you treating this so casually? Perhaps because the amount of power that is the difference between a regular one of his powerful miracles and this raising of the dead. So you see, oh yeah, I see a difference. Like This is how much power, and by the way, here's how much power we have. We have none, and we can't heal anybody, and then he can heal these people of leprosy and paralysis and blindness and deafness. He can do all of that, so there's that. But now raising the dead, and you're like, oh, that's a lot more. But it is so negligible, so small in comparison to the amount of power that he has. If I could say it this way, there's a difference between a $5 bill and a $10 bill. There's certainly a difference. But to a billionaire, hey, sir, I'm sorry. I know I told you I was going to sell you that shirt for $5. Man, we actually going to have to charge you $10. Oh, $10. That's double. He don't care about $5, $10. It's okay. It's not a problem. I have billions The power of Christ to raise someone from the dead did not tax his ability. He was not straining. Understand that. Our Lord raises people from the dead. Would you go with me to Mark? Hold your spot here. I just want to see two quick verses in Mark. Mark chapter 5. And you want to see them very quickly. And I want to, as I give you this, I'm going to refer to two other. We'll not turn to the two other, but I want you to see, do you sense a pattern? All right, look at Mark chapter 5. Here's Mark's episode. Christ goes into the house, verse 41, and taking her by the hand. So here's Mark's version. Taking her by the hand, he said to her. By the way, Mark gets a lot of his his material, we think, from Peter. So Peter would have been in this room. Peter, James, all of you need to get out. Flute players, stop. Wailing women, stop. Everybody get out of here. And then just five people go into the room with a little girl. And so verse 41 Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita, kumi. See it? This is what Jesus says. Takes the girl by the hand, Talita, kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. What happened? And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And then they end up giving her some food. And the word goes out throughout the district. Notice again verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he says to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to thee, I say to you, arise. Notice, I say to you, arise. Talita kumi. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Won't take time to go there. But Jesus, I know of at least, I might have missed one, but I know of at least three times he raises people from the dead. This is the first one. There's going to be another occasion. There's this town called Nain, and there's a widow there, and her son has died, and they're bringing out his coffin, and they're headed to the burial. But Christ comes up and touches the coffin. And Christ says in this situation, Matthew 7, verse 14 and 15, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Do you see the pattern? Talita kumi. Little girl, I say to you, arise. He comes up, puts his hand on this coffin, and he says, young man, I say, so this is a son of a widow woman that has died probably about a day earlier. Young man, I say to you, arise. And of course, the most famous one is Lazarus, is is John chapter 11, verse 43, where Jesus is standing in front of tombs, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. 
So what's my point? If you're taking notes, we want to write this down. Ladies and gentlemen, we greatly underestimate the power in the words of Jesus. We really underestimate the power. I'm going to propose to you, he has to, and he is careful, and he's well aware of every word that he says, but he is, every word that he says means something. I say all the time, words mean things. The words of Christ mean things. He has to be careful what he says. Why? Write this down. All three times Jesus raises someone from the dead, he always calls them very specifically. He calls, little girl, I say to you, arise. Young man, I say to you, arise. Tell us a little bit about his age. Lazarus, I say to you, arise. Many of you right now know exactly the point I'm making. Is this even important? Absolutely it's important. Because he has to single people out. If Jesus just says to the dead, arise and come forth, he can't say that in front of a whole set of tombs because not just Lazarus, all these dead people would start coming out. And if you're hearing that and you're starting to chuckle like the people back in Matthew 9, then you don't understand the power of Christ. You may say, Jeff, get out of here. That is such an overreach that Jesus, okay, so he can heal he can, and he can raise someone from the dead, but he can't call forth all the dead. Read your Bible. The day will come when Christ will speak and all the dead will rise. He has power, amazing power. So for weeks now, we've been in Matthew 8 and 9, and there's been, I've not pointed this out yet, there's kind of this larger picture that's been taking place. We had the Sermon on the Mount, and then you have these three sets of miracles. And then you have an interlude about discipleship. And then you have these three sets of miracles. And then you have the calling of Matthew. And then you have the fallout with the Pharisees and then the disciples of John the Baptist. And then you're going to have these other three sets. This is a set. These two makes a set. So you're going to end up having like these nine time frames, these nine episodes of miracles. And ladies and gentlemen, when we put them all together, you have already been learning. If you will take them literally and let them impact you, what we learn is that Jesus, our Lord, has complete power and authority. Excuse me. Brandon, go ahead and put that note up. <clears throat> I don't know why my voice is starting to do what it does every now and then. But Christ has complete power and authority over all disease, all diseases. We've learned that. Paralysis, he heals it. Leprosy, he heals it. Doesn't matter what is brought before him. Overall, disaster. There's a storm and these fishermen think they're going to die. Christ calms the storm. Overall, demons. Literally, he cast out 2,000 demons at one time. And he has full power over death itself. I challenge you, if you studied the, the, the resurrections that Christ brought about, he resurrected himself. He resurrected this young lady here apparently just dead for a few hours. There's this young man that is dead for about a day and then Lazarus for four days. So whether it's a few hours, a day, three days of himself, four days with Lazarus, it doesn't matter. You cannot put a situation before Christ that is too difficult for him. Lastly, this morning, would you notice number four? So not only this urgent, desperate request and this desperate activity on this woman's part and this power of Christ on display, who on his way to disperse power is dispersing and emanating power. Literally, we know that Christ is operating the whole universe. 
I couldn't help but notice, and I hope you've already been seeing them, number four, attributes, as we look back at this man and this woman, attributes of the most blessed. There are some attributes that I want to propose are characteristic of those who are the most blessed. Two quick questions before I give them to you. You ready? Number one, question. Do you already see in Jairus and this woman the attributes in a person that God blesses the most? Do you see them? Number two, I just want to ask you, do you want to be more blessed? You say, well, of course I want to be more blessed. If we can agree, here Jairus and this woman are very, very different. He's a male, she's a female. That made a difference in that culture. He's a ruler, she has no social status. He's a ruler at the synagogue, at the, the number one leading man in religion in the town. Everyone looks up to him. She's forced to be irreligious because she can't go to the synagogue because of her condition. They really couldn't be more different. And yet, as we study each of them, we see certain attributes and characteristics that qualify and identify the kind of people that God regularly blesses. Listen, everybody on earth today is blessed. Every heartbeat, every breath is a gift from God. Everybody is being blessed in some form. Some are being blessed more. So we've got to ask ourselves, what kind of person is blessed the most? And let's try to be like them. I want to give you three things that describe them, and then our message will be done this morning. Number one, they both had desperation. Did you see that already? This is the kind of people I'm telling you. So, Jeff, what is your point? So, listen. I am not just saying that people that are surrounded by desperate conditions, that they're automatically the most blessed. That is not. I'm actually combining two quick thoughts. The people who are the most blessed are the ones who let desperate situations drive them to the Lord Jesus Christ to get his help. Drive them to the Lord. Drive them to God the Father for help. This is the kind of people that God blesses. This describes Jairus. Jairus wasn't going to let anything stop him. He has a his daughter is dying. You got to swallow your pride and what you might lose some friends and they're going to talk about you. You're probably going to be fired. I don't care. I'm going to make my way. A desperate situation drives him. So here's the point. You have to let desperate situations take you to God. You have to go to God for the blessing. He did. Same thing with this woman. She would let nothing stop her. Guys, can I just tell you without going back and reading the Old Testament. Listen, this woman has no business being in a crowd. She has no business. So when she falls down, healed at the feet of Jesus, then everybody that was touched by her or even thought they might have been touched by her is probably putting two to two together. Really, she probably needed to, I know, nothing's going to stop me getting to Jesus. She's desperate. If she was being totally forthcoming, she'd probably be, excuse me, you're, you're defiled, I'm sorry, and you're defiled, get, uh, defiled, 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 and all of a sudden, then she could get to him quickly. She should not be in this crowd, but you're not going to stop her. I'm really, really sorry. I hate it. Tomorrow you'll be clean again if you'll do the right things. We do. I just got to get to him. I'm not going to let anything stop me. This woman is desperate. Jairus, desperate. Number two, did you already see it? I hope you've spotted it. What are the kind of people that God especially blesses? They both are humble. They possess humility. They possess humility. It's easy to see in both of them. Jairus, I'm assuming, is the highest ranking Jew in all of Capernaum. And what is he doing? 
He's humbling himself. He's throwing himself. You don't see. I want you to picture in the upstate of South Carolina, maybe take the city of Greenville or in Anderson. Let's just take Anderson, right? The pastor of the largest church, right? You say, they, they, they're kind of powerful. They're, they're just not going to bow down. This man was the highest ranking Jew in that area, and he is bowing down before the Lord Jesus. And her especially, I want to propose to you, I think her humility is oozing. Why? It's not, it's not in what she says. It's that what she does. She doesn't even require a face-to-face. She doesn't ask for any word from the Lord. She doesn't ask, would you please touch me? Would you please say something? I think, from what I'm seeing, this woman feels unworthy to even stop and slow down. You're headed to something. They need you a lot more than me. This man's, this man's daughter's died. That's far more important. But if you'll just keep walking, I know that I'm going to receive power from you and healing. And so she just comes up from behind. She don't care. It's not about her. She just wants healing. She, her attitude is, I don't deserve anything. You owe me nothing. But I know you have the power. And I want it. You don't have to give it, but I want it. And I know you have it. And she was healed. Would you write this down? Humble people receive God's grace. Humble people. You say, I want, I want more from the Lord. I want to be in the most blessed. Humble people receive grace from the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. And this is bore out in multiple places. 1 Peter, James, other places. Toward the scorners, here's what the Bible says, proverbially speaking, but also theologically speaking. This is a fact. Toward the scorners, he, God, is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. Let that say, to the humble. What kind of people are most blessed? Those that are desperate and let their desperation drive them to the Lord and they come before him humbly. And then third this morning, and you, you know this already, the third thing is they both had faith. And I mean great faith. Both of them are completely convinced Jesus has all the power. Honey, where are you going? I'm going to get Jesus. Why? He has the power to raise her. She'll be dead by the time I get back. He can raise her from, honey, do you see? I know he can. If you'll just come, she will live. And then with this woman, I'm sorry, let me write this about Jairus. He truly, fully believes that Jesus can do what he has not done yet. I say that for this reason. This is the first time Jesus will raise someone from the dead. This is only, if my understanding of Scripture, this is, I might have forgot one, but this is only the fourth time in the history of the world that anyone's been raised from the dead. Elijah raised someone back to life, and Elisha, who typically did two of everything that Elijah did, Elisha raised two people back to life, and this hasn't happened for seven or 800 years. What makes this man think? He reminds me of the, the nobleman or the centurion who has the servant who said, if you'll just say the word, I don't need you to come to my house. If you'll just say the word, I've never done that before. He had such great faith. This man, Jairus, believes you can raise people from the dead. I know Abraham believed it, but it wasn't required. Isaac was not fully sacrificed. He believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. This man believes Christ can do the unthinkable. And then last verse Would you look with me in Luke 8? Look at verse 42. Luke 8, verse 42. Notice what it says. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And then it switches gears. So they're headed to Jairus' house. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. 
the people pressed. Mark uses the word thronged. They thronged. So as people literally, we've all been somewhere at this huge entertainment venue and the show is over and the crowd is moving out and we're bumping into each other. Excuse me, pardon me. Oops, sorry about that. Well, it's even more so because Christ is in the center of it all and everyone's wanting to get close and so people are touching him. But there's one person, please hear this, there's one person who's not just touching him, she's touching his garment with great faith. She fully believes. I believe right before, again, I'm reading between the lines, I wonder if in her mind, right before, she's waited for this moment, come from out of town, here's the perfect opportunity, there's this crowd, Throwing the move, she works her way up. Excuse me, pardon me, get out of the way. She gets up there, and right before she reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment, I wonder if she stops and thinks, okay, my life's getting ready to change. And then she does it, and literally the healing happens in her body. That's the power of Christ. Do you want to know what I read this week? I've read a few people that give her a hard time. She has weak faith, she's superstitious. Shouldn't have done this. And they kind of lump her in with a group of people, the, the, the Catholic Church years ago, and they may still do it. They would bring these things out called relics, right? And a relic, it could be like a piece of wood that people think was from the ark or a piece of the old temple or a block or a piece of clothing that they think Mary wore. Or here's a piece of pottery from a, a, a pot, a, a, a cup that Mary drank from. And they'd bring them out and people would get close to them and they would pay money to try to pray over them because this is especially effective if we can pray our prayers over the relics. And they try to lump this lady in with that. Can I tell you something? This lady doesn't belong in that. But Jeff, don't you think she's got like this whole touching the garment? Listen to me. There is no power in the garment of Christ. There's no power in that. If there was, then the Roman soldier ended up getting this robe at the cross. Then he all of a sudden is going through the rest of the life. his life. He could charge people. Look, you want to touch the robe? You come. There's no power in the robe. And this woman isn't putting her faith and trust in a robe. There may be a touch of some superstition to what she did, perhaps. But listen to me. Her faith is not in a garment. Her faith is in Christ. Yes, her faith is imperfect. I'm going to admit, her faith isn't perfect here. But I know that her faith is commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't do that with just everyone. He says, your faith, not your touching. Yes, it happened when you touched me. But it wasn't the touching of my garment that made you well. It was your faith that led to you touching my garment that made you well. You have great faith. Hey, maybe not perfect, but he commended her faith. I want to propose to you this. Did she have some superstition? Maybe. Was she perfect? No. But I'll promise you this. All of us, all of us have superstitions in our habits. You say, I don't. You do. Pay attention. You do, it may be the direction you do something. It may be the posture that you do something. It may be the time. It may be what you wear. It may be you don't step on a line. You always jump over. You have little things. You say, what does that mean about me? That is a gap in your theology. All right? That's a gap in my theology. That's a gap in your theology. What does that mean? These superstitious things that we put in our life... What they mean is our faith is not yet fully developed in certain areas. But here's the wonderful thing. God is patient. Yes, her faith is not perfect, but Christ, God the Father, is patient with us 
When our faith isn't fully, nobody's faith is fully developed. None of us. None of us have a full theology. None of us get it all together. We all have things. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not implying that God doesn't care about heresy. There's a difference between heresy and a gap in theology. There's a big difference. I am not telling you that all religions and all faiths, and I don't care if you believe in that God, that God knows I'm the real God behind that God, and eventually it's all going to result in salvation. No, that's not the case. What I want to offer to you is this. What God is constantly looking for in us, so our habits reveal superstitions, What God is looking for in us is a genuine faith in Him, the God of the Bible, a genuine faith in His Son, and I didn't have room on your handout, but I'm going to add it to it, and the proper love that comes from that faith. This is what God is looking for. And we're all striving. Hey, you have a gap in your theology, but God is patient. Is your faith in me? Is your faith in my Son? Is it a growing faith? Is it resulting in love? I hope it is. So I close this morning with these thoughts. What kind of person does God bless the most? Those that have desperation and let the desperation drive them to God. And those who come before him humbly. And those who come before him with full faith. So ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you something? I want you to think. I want you to put, like, put it on something. What was the last desperate situation that you had what was the last situation that life dealt you that kind of put you in their levels of desperation i'll offer you something in my life i I hit a point of desperation every week every week and it's when i'm trying to prepare and you may say that's silly guys i take this serious and I, i mean this week i really struggle i really struggle and last week i said i felt like the lord opened that passage I feel like this week there's so much that I have just missed and it's just not open to me yet. Maybe another day, another year, who knows? Maybe I'll hear someone else. But every week there's a point of desperation that hits me and it's like, God, you're going to have to do something. I cannot just manufacture this. Here's my point. When is the last thing that puts you in a desperate situation? Did you let it drive you to God or does your mind, I'm talking to you, does your mind immediately start going, what do I need to do? I need to, oh, desperation. Then I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to do that to make it all work. Or is your first response, by the way, there's something that we need to do. We have to go to the Lord, but is your first response to go to the Lord? Or is it just what I'm going to have to do now? How can I fix this? God allows things to happen in our life to drive us to Him. Today's passage clearly reveals nothing's too hard for God. Nothing's too hard for Christ. And yet so often we'll let him be last resort. R.C. Sproul writes it this way. He says, yes, he is governing, upholding, and sustaining the vast universe in all its complexity from moment to moment. But he still knows us, cares for us, and listens to our prayers. Guys, could I invite, could I put this in your thought? That maybe as this desperation hits, God is literally waiting for a prayer to come from you. Let your desperation drive you to the Lord just like these two people. And then when you come to him, come with faith. What kind of faith? Watch. God, you know what's going on. But I know this. I know this. I don't know what you're going to do. 
but I know you have the power and I know you love me no matter what. I know you love me. And it might have been 12 years of a difficult situation. Lord, I know you love me and I know you have the power. So you're coming with faith and you're coming to him and desperation's driving you. And then how else do you come? Humbly submitting. Lord, I know you have the power and I know you love me, but I know you have this sovereign will, this sovereign plan. And Lord, I know you are wiser than me And so if my request does not fit within your sovereign plan and your wisdom, then I still surrender. You say, well, Jeff, what was the point of going? Even if he doesn't answer our request, at least we're still closer to the Lord, and that's where the strength comes from. But I'm going to propose to you we have not because we ask not. And if we'll go and ask for more, God will give his children much more than we've ever had before. You'll be most blessed when you are desperate. So desperate, it drives you to Christ, and you'll be most blessed when you come believing. I know you can, I know you love me, and I'm surrendering, but I'm making my request, and whatever you let happen, I'll trust you. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Just for a moment, I'm going to pray. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning after I pray, we'll be done, and I hope you have a wonderful week, and if we can help you in any way, you let us know, but just before we pray... Can I ask you this? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm thinking about to the specific thing that spoke to me this week. How is it with you? Be honest. Do you find yourself regularly being content? Are you regularly grateful? Regularly thankful? Regularly verbalizing? Or would you have to in all honesty say... Jeff, you know what? I find myself so often having more than enough food and plenty of shelter and plenty of clothing and health and basic necessities and and harmony around me, and yet my mind is just always discontent with what I don't have. I, I take for granted what I do have, and I'm constantly envying what I don't have, and I'm just missing the blessings that I have. And I know, I realize today, the day will come, and I'll look back. And I'll wish for these days. And then take a moment and confess that to the Lord. Just confess it, acknowledge it, and then give thanks. Lord, thank you that I can see and hear and my food tastes and I can walk and I, I got sleep last night. Thank him for what you do have. Don't fixate on what you don't have. And then lastly, as we pray, let's bring a request to the Lord in faith. Let our desperation drive us to him. Let's close in prayer. Father, Lord, I pray that you will make up the huge gap in what I said about this passage and what this passage has for us. Lord, would you drive folks to go read in Mark and Luke and pour over this again and again and, Lord, to see themselves as being like this woman and this little family, that the rest of their days would spend their time testifying that for a fact no one ever cared for them, no one ever did for them what this man, Jesus, the Son of God, did for them. And Lord, may we realize how great blessings we have, and may we be the same. Just let our life and our words testify to your greatness as well as your goodness. Lord, would you put your favor upon our people this week? spiritually, physically, 
emotionally, financially, relationally, in every way. Ministerially, Lord, would you put your favor and Lord, let us be coming to you regularly, not just in desperate times, but certainly in desperate times and finding you faithful and powerful. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.